0: You're listening to Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information, check out chrisblair.com. Hey everybody, here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs podcast. I'm your host, Chris Blair. And on this week's episode, I sat down with a good buddy of mine, Dylan Altman. I've known Dylan for uh, about 17, 18 years now. And uh, I just love this guy. He's been through so much and he shares so much of that story in this episode. He's got a blues and rock heavy background and he's gonna tell us about his instant draw to the industry after watching the music video Jump by Van Halen. From that moment on, Dylan knew that music was what he needed to do, not wanted, but needed. And he basically made up his mind and started a band uh, and has been playing and writing music ever since. Dylan has written so many songs throughout the course of his career with number ones for Tim McGraw, Jake Owen, and Jason Aldean. Um, He's had even more cuts with people like Eli Young Band, Trace Atkins, JT Hodges, Eric Paslay, Jonathan Jackson, and more. You're gonna hear about that journey and also the full story behind his number one barefoot blue jean night uh, with Jake Owen and his journey in the music industry and struggles with sobriety and how the day after we recorded this episode was when he became four years sober and is doing better than ever i really want to give him some big props for going deep in this this is not what we expected to talk about on this episode but as someone who lives and breathes the music life every day you know it's just a fact that in the industry that we're in there are a lot of social events there are a lot of things that we do and alcohol is around all of it doesn't have to be a bad thing but I've seen so many friends let it turn into being a bad thing and Dylan goes deep into that journey and talks about the two most important days of his entire life one was when his daughter was born and the other was when he was arrested in an airport because he was blackout drunk and that day changed his life um so even if you're not into music and you somehow found yourself listening to this podcast uh This is a story in itself just to go deep on. It's so great. Dylan, again, thank you so much for sharing this. I think it's going to hit a lot of people and, um, and I loved it. Dylan is now booking and playing shows with his blues band. Um, He's also about to release his very own show with his daughter, uh, where they cook with songwriters and special guests and play music afterwards. I'm so excited for that. It's going to be coming out uh, sometime about mid to late October, probably around the time that we put this uh, episode out. And as a singer, songwriter and foodie myself, I personally can't wait to see it. heck maybe I'll even be a guest on there Dylan Uh, just give me a shout love to uh, come eat food and play music with you anytime brother Uh, again loved having this guy on he is uh, he's just a great guy Uh, so check out the liner notes you're going to hear all about that Uh, also uh, ways that if you are struggling with sobriety we're going to throw that in the liner notes as well Um, just different ways that you can find help and uh, make sure that you go check out Dylan at a show and um, and support the food show that's gonna be coming out. So um, also, as always, help us spread the word of this podcast, Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair, as we continue to grow. We appreciate the support and the more you support us, the more we get to keep doing this. So give it a like, hit that uh, like, subscribe, follow button, share it with a friend, wherever you're listening, and uh, we can't thank you enough. Let's get to it. Here is my buddy, Dylan Altman. Hey everybody! Here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs podcast. I am your host Chris Blair, and today I am here in Nashville, Tennessee, with Dylan Altman. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. Yeah, man. happy to be here. We've uh, we were just talking right before this starts. We've known each other for about 17 years now, at least, right? And, yeah,
1: because it, it was back with Paslay when he first started. So 2006, I think. Yeah. 17 years.
0: Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's been fun. You've uh, I've gotten to watch a, a lot of a uh, lot of success with you. You've got number ones with uh Jake Owen, Tim McGraw, Jason Aldean, there's just all kinds of great stuff to talk about so um we're gonna get there but before we do take me back to you're from New Jersey Uh uh-huh um so take me back to how you got into music and uh and and what got you to Nashville uh happily I you know
1: it's great man I I, uh I grew up in a, a family that was very artistic and my dad my mother was a painter a French abstract painter And my dad, uh, he's still around. He's a musician, jazz pianist, but a wonderful composer, too, like contemporary classical stuff. And um, he had a studio in our house where he had his piano. And I used to come home every day because there was always music playing in the house. Uh, And I had a sister 10 years older who listened to music. And um, I would come home from school, like, when I was five years old, and I'd walk into my dad's studio, and they had all these great vinyl records of the Beatles. And that was my real introduction to music, mm. man. Cause I, I got home and I would put on. It's so funny. I can't, t- I'm so technologically challenged and everything. <laughs> but at five years old, I was able to put on a record on a, a, a vinyl record on a record player and listen. You know, back then it was top to bottom. So you didn't skip songs. Right. It was a hassle to move the needle, right? So I would listen to uh rubber soul revolver sergeant peppers hard days night help and my all-time favorite abbey road and i would listen to those things every day and it started growing to where you know again my mom listened to stuff my dad listened to stuff my sister and then at 13 i got into guitar and it was only on i didn't have any desire to do guitar but my dad was teaching a friend of his who's a guitar teacher he was teaching his son piano he said, well, do you guys want to trade off? Maybe he'll teach you guitar. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. And at that time was when I first saw the video for Jump by Van Halen. Oh, yeah. And the moment I saw that video and saw Eddie Van Halen, because I hadn't really listened to Van Halen prior to that. And what I saw was this guy, if you watch the video, he's smiling the entire time. And he's jumping up and down and he's having fun. And it's such a great song. And that was it, man, from the age of 13 i wanted to be a rock star that's what i wanted to do so you know i started learning and um playing in bands and you know when i was 15 in jersey it was great because i had one band which was like my metal band where i was playing like everything from van halen and white snake and zeppelin and uh Iron Maiden, all that stuff, right? But I also had a group that was uh, with guys 10 years older than me because I was getting pretty good at it. And these guys, are they're in their mid-20s. So at that time, they were listening to, they were playing like Squeeze and Elvis Costello and Springsteen stuff. Because where I grew up in Jersey, it's Monmouth County, which is where Springsteen's from. And Springsteen grew up in Freehold, which is about 10 minutes from where I grew up. So, Springsteen, you can imagine how big he is. There. Oh, yeah. And you can't really avoid it. It's it's there. And I came to it naturally because my sister had um all of his records on vinyl. And I started playing Born to Run on vinyl. And I started listening to Wild, The Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle and stuff. So, all that, it just became what I wanted to do. It's like, you know, I was a jock. I played sports and stuff. I did a little bit of everything. I, I made people laugh i did this and that but it was always music that i wanted to do and um and then that got me to berkeley college of music in uh do i you, you want me to keep going <laughs> yeah
0: man yeah yeah that's great <laughs> it's yeah like,
1: this is one of those times you ask me one question we could be like an hour that's all it. right let's but go it's a good story so yeah so i get to berkeley and um you know again my dad musician he he wanted me to have something it's so funny he he wanted me to have something to fall back on in case i failed as a rock star (laughs) which was you know highly likely right (laughs) so he uh he said you know because again a great composer he said i want you to you try film scoring which is you know writing music for movies yeah which i love movies i I watch almost a movie a day i gotta be honest i love watching movies old movies new movies horror films you name it everything and um so i did that and, but, at the same time, I had a band, and I was really starting to learn how to write songs i 'll never forget the first time I wrote a song that my dad liked, because you know I was writing crappy stuff, like really we all do right? Yeah. I can imagine yeah what your first few songs you're like too it's just yeah. awful, um, but we have to write those to get to that point. So my first one it was just a blues tune, i 'll even show it to you, man it was um it was a blues tune. I was really getting into the Almond Brothers and Steve Ray Vaughan, and it was called Dissatisfied, and it was all based off of this. It ain't easy, baby. It's like a blues tune, right? Yeah. And that was the song where the first time, I saw anyone, but especially my dad respond. Like my dad is like he'd be he'd tell his friends, "Hey Dylan, come play that song." You know, Dissatisfied, or he always butchered names and say dissatisfaction or whatever the hell he always yeah. had a new name for it. But that inspired me to be like, okay, maybe I can do this. And because um, at that time, you know, Eddie Van Halen was a guitar player. I just wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. And Eddie Van Halen, he wrote the music, but he wasn't writing the lyrics and everything, and he wasn't singing. But what happened is when I got to Berkeley my first day, man, I'll tell you, you know, I was from that small town in Jersey. So in in my small town in New Jersey, I was like the Eddie Van Halen of the small town in New Jersey, which is not that great of a guitar <laughs> player, you know what I mean? And you go to Berkeley cuz Berkeley College of Music is like one of the best music schools in the world. Like yeah. people come from all over there. And um this roommate, I would open up the door and he's a dude from Long Island and he is just killing it. He's doing stuff I had no idea how to do, like, sweet picking, and his chops were just remarkable, right? And he's just doing his thing, and I was like a deer in the headlights, and I was like, it's my first day, right? I'm like, "What? can I curse on this thing? Yeah,
0: you can. You (laughs) can always beat
1: me out. I was like, what the fuck am I going to do, right? And and he looks at me, and he goes, hey, bro, what do you do? And it was one of those moments. It was fight or flight, which is a defining moment in your life, right? And certainly for mine. And part of me wanted to just pack my bags and go back to Jersey. But the other part of me was like, well, okay, what do I do? And I had just started, I realized I am not Eddie Van Halen, <laughs> So that's out. But I'd started really getting into Steve Ray Vaughan and the blues and the Almond Brothers. So I started playing some blues licks and, and that got his attention. And um, the next day, literally, man, the next day, I bump into this guy named David Steele, who's one of my best friends in the world. He lived here for years in Nashville, an amazing guitar player. I mean, he came to town after college. He played with John Prine. And then he left the John Prine gig for Steve Earle gig, like, late 90s. And then he played with Lucinda. And then he ended up, at the end of his career, playing for Gary Allen, which was a different type of gig, but it was a lot of fun. It was yeah. kind of like the Led Zeppelin of country music. <laughs> kind of crazy. But – um but yeah, so I got there, and and he was an amazing blues guitar player, and I heard him play, and my playing went in one like you know my growth as a musician was like this, and then within one year it went like that because there were so many great players, yeah, and that inspired me, and then I had a band, and and it was a, it started off as like a jam band, like an Almond Brothers thing, but um you know my song started off as like six seven minute songs, but. That influence of the Beatles and all that, and pop music, because I used to devour pop music. I, I, I've told this one before where when I was growing up, my brother, my older brother, who's not a musician, um, he and I used to listen to, uh, do you remember the American Top 40 with Casey Kasem? Oh, yeah. 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 So we Because li- the thing is, growing up in Jersey, I didn't listen to country music at all, not because I didn't like it. I just wasn't exposed to it. The only country music I was exposed to is we had an 8-track tape of um, – Hank Williams Sr.'s greatest hits, which was a good thing to have because I loved that. But, um, yeah, man, you know, I just, I started writing songs and getting it to where I was honing that craft. And they were turning from seven-minute songs to six-minute songs to five-minute songs. And then by that point, you know, I was kind of ready to, I graduated and was trying to figure out where to go. And somehow I ended up in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. What year was that? That was in 1993. So thirty years. This is my thirtieth year. In fact, what are we today? We're September eighteenth. In about a month, it'll be literally the thirtieth anniversary of me and my buddy
0: Ben driving down here. Wow, that's awesome. We need to celebrate. We need to do something big.
1: Yeah, it's a big deal, man. Yeah, because it didn't. It turned out, you know, I I, none of it turned out the way I thought. I mean, I was trying to be a rock star, and in nineteen ninety three. Nashville was not a rock scene man. there was yeah. nothing in fact it was one of those type of things I don't want to say there was nothing there was some good stuff but they weren't it wasn't a scene on the map like the coasts which were the people signing rock acts they didn't take Nashville seriously this is before the Black Keys and Jack White and and uh, uh Kings of Leon and stuff like that you know what I mean yeah. it's changed a lot right um but you know we did it for like six years and Played all you know a lot of great gigs and and then my six minute songs were becoming four minute songs and five minute songs and all that stuff and um there were still solos and stuff because I've always been a guitar player yeah, but it turned into something where it was like um I was starting to write I was no longer just writing with the other guitar player in the band who wasn't much of a writer he was he was wasn't really i don't think he denied that he wasn't really a writer and it was it turned into something where now I was writing lyrics and music, and I felt like I was like I had a vision for a song. Yeah, and um, yeah, I I didn't know what to do, and then I, I ended up meeting a guy from uh, a publisher in town named Daniel Hill. I don't know if you, did you know Daniel? Yeah. from Cal Four. Yeah, and Daniel wanted to sign me. My band had broken up by then. He wanted to sign me to a an a publishing deal and try and get me a record deal as like a solo artist, kind of like a John Mayer. Uh, eric clapton type thing like it's a bluesy soulful pop thing and uh and we tried that and it just wasn't working and then i wrote one day with andrews osborne we wrote watch the wind blow by yeah tim mcgraw
0: yeah i mean and you've let let's dive into that because you've had you know the the number ones that you've had are also with like mega artists yeah, some big artists yeah. so Very uh, lucky. Which, Very is, fortunate. which is which is yeah, very fortunate. Yeah. Um, so you know, let's let's dive in and tell the story behind you know some of those, whether it's Tim or, or yeah, Jason yeah. or Jake. I mean, they're all great songs, but like you know, especially um, you know, Barefoot is is just was a massive hit yeah, man, for it was you and Jake.
1: Huge. I mean, it's a life changing song for everyone involved. Myself, Eric, my, our friend Terry Sawchuk, as well as um, Jake. I mean, Jake has yeah. told me himself how big, how much that changed his life and i mean he could almost argue it changed helped change joey moy's life because joey you know obviously he had lots of success before that but that was i think that was one of his first things in town that he did because he co-produced that yeah. with rodney Clawson, is one of my best buddies and um that song for that time it was just remarkable man because um when it when it hit you know, we just did a, a little work tape of it We didn't do a big demo of it It was just Eric on one of those Then What do we call the Nashville tuning string Where it's just like the high strung thing Sing it And Terry Sawchuk, our co-writer Great producer Builds tracks and stuff And he came up with that loop That Which was kind of like a Jack and Diane type thing Right? Mm-hmm. And um And he made that, so all you hear in that demo is Eric doing that with that thing and singing the hell out of it. And then Joey and Rodney, what they did is they took that loop thing and they just put it on steroids. And I'm not saying that was the first song that had all that stuff, but that was that big song that really, I think at that time, really helped change things for good or for bad, depending on how you look at it. For me, it was good. It was great. Because yeah. it turned out um, it it became such a big song. And it was just something that, you know, I, I thought they just did a great job on it. And it happened at the last second, man. It was the last song that they cut on that album. Yeah. And it was, And it's the title track. So right, they had yeah. another title track. Yeah. And um, that story, I mean, I'll tell you that story before I even tell you about the story of writing it. I mean, that was amazing because um i was at the end of my deal at the time so i was i needed a hit man i didn't know what i was gonna do and um i get a phone call from rodney clausen that he says man did you write that barefoot blue g night song i was like yeah and he goes man we're cutting it on jake and i didn't even know it right and um you know everything that could have gone right on that thing went right we got mm. so lucky man i mean there's you know anyone who out there in tv land yeah. <laughs> podcast land watching this needs to know that like that's a great song like I, it, I i think it's just one of those it's it's one of those songs that's great in the sense that it's a it's a hooky song you don't even if you don't like that song it's gonna stick in your head like, yeah we did our job that day we we, we spoke about our own kind of it, it's authentic it's like from our own kind of childhoods and stuff that feeling of being young and and just in love with life and just enjoying stuff and all those woes in there are you know a product of me growing up in new jersey where we woe everything i always joke around like we woe amazing grace in church and stuff <laughs> and you know all those springsteen songs have woes all over them and bon jovi stuff so we you know whoa it's all over that song yeah so, but that was that wasn't enough. It's like Natalie, Eric's wife at the time. She was Eric Passley's wife. Was a our song plugger, and she pitched that on the Friday, the last Friday that Renee Bell was in that job. And Renee Bell, you know, historically famous A uh, and R person at the at the label. It's her last day, and she didn't have to even probably because she could have canceled the yeah. meeting, right? She takes it, takes a song, gives it to Jake. Jake listens to it all weekend long and he told me himself that at the end of the weekend he was breaking up with his girlfriend at the time. And his girlfriend literally is like leaving on Sunday. She's got all her, all her shit packed and she's leaving. And he looks at her because I guess I don't know what kind of relationship they had if he took the sought advice from her or something. But he said, he said, you know, I love this song. He goes, but are there too many woes in it? He actually said that. Are there too many woes in it? And he told me and she looked at him and said, if you don't cut that song, you're an idiot. And she left. Now, most men in that situation <laughs> with their pride would be like, what the hell with you? I'm not cutting that song. And he not only, so he still wanted to cut He goes into the studio on Monday and Rodney Clausen, again, a good buddy of mine, had already heard that song, even though it had never been cut because Eric's, Eric used to write with Rodney's wife, Nicole before nicole had really hit yeah the stratosphere was kind of younger and, and writing songs and her and eric were buddies so she had heard that song and had it like on her ipod or ipad whatever those things were called at the time yeah and rodney knew it so when he when jake played it for him on monday morning rodney's like oh i know that song it's my buddy dylan's song it's a hit song and next thing you know they cut it and um the rest is, is freaking history, man. I mean, that thing was, uh, we wrote that four months beforehand. They cut it nine months later. It was a huge two week number one. And then, um, we found out in 2020 that it was the most played song of the last decade on country radio, which is an incredibly humbling thing. I mean, oh, think yeah. how many songs were out there and how many huge songs. And it's just so that song just really became a, a, its own. It's, it's it's just huge. It's
0: just yeah. crazy. I, I sometimes can't believe it. This episode is brought to you by Sennheiser Microphones. When we first started this podcast, we were using some older microphones, and Sennheiser came in and sponsored us and gave us some MK4s and 914s. And, I mean, I'm telling you, it's made all of the difference in the world. We love these microphones. We use them at the listening room as well. And... I just can't say enough great things about them. Go check out Sennheiser.com. If you are into music in any way, their microphones are hands down the best on the planet. Go check them out, Sennheiser.com. And thank you, Sennheiser, for the support and the sponsorship. We love y'all. What about, uh, take me into the uh, into the writer's room with Terry and, and Eric. Uh, who, yeah, yeah. How, how did the idea come about? and? So,
1: you know, I mean, you know, you write songs. It's like some days someone's got title, some days someone's got a melody, some days someone's got uh, some lyrics kind of scattered around. And, you know, Eric and I at the time were writing, Eric was the intern initially at cal at the publishing company I was at, and, um, you know you've you know eric very well he's yeah he's a brilliant artist but you know he's he when you meet him at first he's a little socially awkward sure yeah yeah and he was 10 times more socially awkward at like 20 you probably remember him back there oh yeah he's a really tall guy and sweetheart of a guy yeah super talented but you know like just would kind of say non sequiturs and you wouldn't know what the hell he's talking about and um but we he and i kind of Started writing together because one day back in the tape room, remember, they used to call these oh, yeah. tape rooms. Um, the guy in the tape room said, You should write with Eric. And I was like, That tall, weird guy is always kind of lingering around. <laughs> and he goes, uh, Yeah, man, he's great. And I was like, All right, why not? I'll try it. And we got together and I was in from the downbeat. The moment yeah. I heard that kid sing and I heard him um, write, saw him write and he had great ideas. And he, you know, Eric's such a great writer because. He never settles. It's like, you know, one thing that bothers me about writing, writers, including my own writing at times, is that it's very easy to be lazy. Like say, oh, that's good. I like that. It feels good. No, it feels great, you know. And sometimes that works. But sometimes it doesn't. And when you have someone like Eric who doesn't mess around, like he's he's always searching for that next great line. Mm-hmm. I've seen it because he and I used to write every week for like three years. So I would watch him search for time. Well, I thought we had the line. And then he'd dig deeper, and there it was. It would be a better line. So um, we were writing with Terry that day, saw Chuck. And I just started telling – this story i don't even know what made me talk about it but i was at a u2 concert in philadelphia in 1988 man i was 17 years old um at the old jfk stadium where they had live aid remember live aid in the 80s they had that big huge thing i don't know uh, i guess i guess i'm a lot older than you are you're not the, that much older. Yeah. I don't know. You know Live Aid. Either. Live Aid was that thing they had. It was after the remember the USA for Africa thing with the they made raised money for the people starving in Africa. Yeah. So they had this huge concert in, in Wembley Stadium and also in, in Philadelphia. That's Okay. So U two was playing there in nineteen eighty eight on the Joshua Tree Tour, the top of their their the height of their powers, right? And I'm there, it's like a hundred thousand people there and I'm on the, the lawn like thirty feet from the stage and with my buddies and it's a beautiful september night like around this time of year yeah and uh they start playing i gotta play the song because it only makes sense so i'm there and they start playing one of my favorite u2 songs called bad and it goes if you twist and turn away and i remember like and I, you understand, I was stoned out of my mind. Was <laughs> not, I was 17. I was in high school. And I turned around, and all you could see, man, for miles and miles, it seemed, were lighters. Everybody was holding up lighters. Yeah. And um, fast forward 22 years, and I start telling that day, I start telling that story to Eric and and Terry, and Eric starts strumming those chords to Barefoot Blues United out of nowhere. You know, he starts smiling, starts strumming that thing, and we just spit that song out in like 90 minutes, man. And, um, it was so funny because, you know, again, Eric's always looking for the right line, right? So it goes, whoa, never going to grow up, never going to slow down. Whoa. And I said, we were shining like lighters in the dark in the middle of a rock show, which is, if I may toot my own horn, and that was one of the best lines of that. That's the best side of that song. It's definitely one of the best lines I've ever written. And, uh, And Eric didn't like the line. He liked the image of the line, but it didn't rhyme. Like it should be, whoa, never going to grow up, never going to slow down. He thought it should be shining like something in a small town, right? And I was like, dude, because he didn't know the image. He wasn't a guy in my age. He he wasn't used to doing that. And luckily, Terry was my age. And Terry was like, no, man, he's right. Dylan's right. You got to have the lighters and stuff. So we put that in, and sure enough, six months later we're at uh jake owen's concert at the bridgestone with keith urban and we're buying a t-shirt for my daughter and it's just barefoot blue g night on it she's like he's like oh that's awesome we hold it up and i turned it around and it says shining like light in the dark nice. in the middle of the rock show i said what do you think about that motherfucker you know? <laughs> and uh yeah and so it's like it was just one of those moments man that day that they just flowed we wrote it in 90 minutes and mm. um You know, another thing about this town, man, and you know this too, it's like that song was passed on, put on hold and passed on by both Luke and Dirks, as far as I know. And that doesn't mean those guys were wrong. I mean, as you know, it's like their albums might have been looking for something that wasn't that. And it's easy now to be an armchair quarterback and say, well, how could they pass on that song? But as you know, it's like everybody, all these artists are just – either writing hit songs all the time or being flooded with songs that sound like hits. So what they have to do is find the one that fits in their thing. And luckily, Jake heard it at the time that he did, and it was just undeniable for him. And it it changed his life and all of ours.
0: Yeah. Well, you want to play part of it? I would love to.
1: And I'll say this, too. They changed a couple lines in there. And... You know, sometimes in this town, man, I think more so now than than in the past, you know, an artist will change some lines and suddenly want credit for the song. Right. Co-writing credit. None of that. They didn't do any of that. They changed it, and, you know, they made better changes. But, uh, yeah, so it just starts off with a... and bright edge of the water we were feeling all right back down a country road the girls are always hot and the beer is ice cold yeah cadillac horns in the hood my buddy frankie had his dad at the muck good the girls smiled when we rolled by they hop in the back cruise we to the riverside whoa gonna throw up oh never gonna slow down we were shouting like ladders in the dark in the middle of a rock show oh we were doing it right oh yeah coming alive in the summer summer barefoot night, night. Ooh. yeah man love it <laughs> that's it
0: man yeah so um yeah, how how was that? Like walk me through um, you know, just the uh the feeling inside cuz like I mean that uh, you know, you've you've had again great success, but um you know, just uh, I was talking to uh, you know, someone else on a different podcast not too yeah. long ago just about like all of the stuff that happens behind the scenes. Yeah. That you know, like when uh when a song finally, you know, finally gets there. You know, and especially songs that just take off like that, it becomes super successful. Yeah. And and like that one, you know, the most played song of the decade. Yeah. Um. You know, the 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 months and and sometimes years of uh, you know, the, like basically growing up with that song. Yeah. You know, that happens that people don't ever know uh, unless they live in this world that we live in in Nashville. Like just so. So once those things started like pouring out, like you know, wh- what was that like for you? Uh, well, it's interesting. So like I said, that that
1: first number one I had with Tim McGraw was two thousand four. It was the first song I'd ever had cut. Again, I was I was trying to be a rock artist. Yeah. So that was an accident, kind of a happy accident. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But um, that thing hit, and then that by that point I was married and had a daughter. So we we me and my ex decided at the time it was like you know I. I I, I just, uh, maybe I'll focus on this songwriting thing because I didn't really like going on the road and everything. So I did that, but that was, again, nobody knew me. It was like, so it's like I hadn't put in, I had put in my 10,000 hours in town, but not on Music Row. So, you know, we call it a 10-year town. I moved in 93. The song went number one in 2004. So I had done my 10 years. Yeah. But I knew, nobody on Music Row knew me because I was in the rock scene. So I had to kind of re- I had to reintroduce myself to people with a number one song. So that's a nice calling card to have. But you know how it is. It's like they, people are kind of like, all right, do it again. Let's see what else you can do. So it took me seven years, man. And it was it was tough. And it was, um, I went through a divorce at the time, which was really tough. And um, it was a struggle. And then we wrote that song. And Within a three-year span, I had like bam, bam, bam. I had that, and the next year, literally, that went number one. Labor Day of two thousand eleven, and then two thousand twelve around Labor Day, "Take a Little Ride" by Aldine went number one. So what happened? And then I had Chase Bryant's debut single, which was a top ten. Yeah, all within like you know a three-year span. So the result that had for me is you know it it definitely opens doors you know it definitely got me into more rooms and different rooms and and with different artists and writers um and it also uh got me to a point where my my initial deal i was suddenly a free agent and i i had all these companies vying for me which was humbling and it was also it was uh Intoxicating. I'm not gonna lie. It was like holy shit. People are suddenly digging what I do, Um, and I signed a deal with a company that for that was a bigger deal than I'd ever had, and uh, it didn't really pan out. But you know, that's where it gets to my next chapter in my life, which is that you know, I'm tomorrow. In fact, tomorrow I I will be four years sober, and um, during this time, from like 20, I'd say 2009 to 2019. I was a full-blown alcoholic, so yeah. I was really struggling. Um, so it was difficult. Like, I, I was writing songs, and I had confidence in that. Because, you know, co- uh, success breeds confidence Yeah, for writers and for anyone. But that's kind of tempered by the alcoholism. Because when I was drinking like that, I, I didn't, you know... I wasn't believing any of the press anyone would say about me. Like people would tell me I was great or people do it. I hated myself. So I was just showing up trying to – I loved playing music. Like if I was playing here or the Bluebird or when I used to play at Belcourt Taps in my blues band, those are the happiest days of my drinking years because playing for people and performing my songs and singing and playing, that's as happy as I ever am but I was just miserable at that time. So it was a difficult time. It's like I had all the success, but um, I don't know, man. I just kind of lost that desire to really do – I was kind of just surviving Mm. instead of thriving or like seeking that next thing because I was just – I was kind of dying inside, man. So it was a difficult time to have that success. I'm grateful for that success because it really – it helped me get through those years. I mean, financially I was in a, I'd been in a hole for my divorce and everything. And, uh, you know, it really kind of, it opened doors, but at the same time I was closing doors because of my drinking. Yeah. Like a door would open and instead of running through it with a great opportunity, I would either shudder from it or, or recoil because of my own issues.
0: Yeah. Well, man, um, you know we've we've known each other for a long time yeah. so you know i've I've kind of you know i watched you go that like go through that path yeah um four years man congratulations yeah tomorrow yeah. will be four years yeah man.
1: and i was uh you know I, I was flying to a bmi gig down in captiva island and um got so uh drunk at the airport that i got arrested and uh blackout drunk i have no recollection of anything and um Buddies of mine who were already on that plane, like Wynn Varble and and even Stevens and stuff, were texting me like saying, hey, man, they're, they're calling your name. Where are you at? And uh, I was blacked out, arrested, and dragged to a, a hospital bed. And then uh, some of my best friends, wonderful writers, guys you know, Marshall Altman yeah. and Bryce Long and Mason Hunter from BMI, mm-hmm. they came over that day, and they did an intervention with my ex-wife, who I'm still close with. And my beautiful daughter, Isabella, who at the time was 18. And um, they they said, we're taking you to rehab because they they didn't want to see me. I was killing myself. I was basically, my blood alcohol that day at the airport was like 0.3, over 0.30. I mean, that's like uh, legal limits 0.08. Yeah. I mean, and I've told this to them many times how grateful I am to every one of them because I know this much, the way I was, before Marshall, Bryce, and Mason showed up, I was trying being to manipulate my ex-wife to go home, telling her I was I was fine, everything was be all right, so I could just walk to the liquor store and drink some more. I mean, I, I'm just grateful to be sitting here with you, yeah. talking about music, which I love so much. It's like yeah. you know, music was so hard for me during those years, but it's like it's something that was never very hard for me, if I'm being honest. Like I, I, I. I I put a guitar in my hand and a microphone from me. I, I I feel so comfortable. Right. But I was so uncomfortable in my skin at that time. So yeah, it's remarkable what, what it has done for my life and and it also changed where my trajectory because you know when I got out of rehab, I did thirty days in rehab. Man, when I got out, um, my deal was about to expire. So and when you first get out of rehab like that, you're you're just trying to. Stay sober. i mean it's it's a challenging thing i mean as you i mean we're we're, we play in bars i remember when i was in rehab i had some of my counselors were like well you might want to rethink what you do for a living and i was thinking why the hell would i do that you want to take away the one thing that makes me happy i said you want to ensure i'm going to drink again do that so i had to learn how to do it i had to learn how to play here or anywhere but i mean like a place like here man i mean i would come in before the show and I would have a couple drinks to get myself settled and and I'd drink while I was on the stage. And I'll never forget him, I got played here that first gig and and uh Jack was uh, remember Jack? Yeah. She, she was the bartender and she she came around gave me a hug and and gave me a ginger ale and you know what I was I was all right with that ginger ale man. And uh so my deal expired and I was it was the beginning of twenty twenty. And I'm sitting there, I'm like thinking, well, what am I going to do now? It's like, well, you know, I'm sober now. I'm going to just get my a new deal. and I'm going to be better than ever, right? And then what happens? I start taking meetings. And what happens? The pandemic. So the business kind of shut down for a couple of months there. And then I had major neck surgery, man. I don't know if I told you that. Like I had um, a stenosis thing on my neck where your spinal cord gets constricted. So what happened is I couldn't use my left hand for like a year. And they thought it was carpal tunnel, and I had surgery for that, and this and that. it was all during the pandemic. And then finally, um, I had to have this major neck surgery. And what all that did, having to go through all that and the pandemic, trying to be sober, is it made me focus on my sobriety and focus on, well, what do I want to do anymore? And I determined that as much as I love writing songs, and as much success as I've had, I was ready for a new chapter. Yeah. I didn't want to do – I didn't, not that I don't write. I write a lot still. Yeah. But I don't – I didn't want to chase the music row thing anymore. Again, there's nothing wrong with it. I did it for a long time. But I had kind of had my fill because by the end it wasn't fun. My last year of writing for the market when I was drinking, it just wasn't fun. It was starting to become a chore. I felt like it was something that uh, I, I I either didn't like what I was writing or the ones I was writing that I liked either weren't getting through or they were getting through to the last second. <laughs> and <laughs> then and it just became exhausting. So I started focusing on other things, man. I write, you know, blues stuff with Kenny Wayne Shepherd Cause you know, I play guitar. I'm yeah. Blues guitar player. I've had a song that was cut by Kingfish a wonderful blues guy out there. Joanne Shaw Taylor, another artist wrote, did that. I, still- I used to
0: come watch you guys like on a monthly basis, uh, with that blues band. Um, Oh, I'm drawing like who was uh Gabe? Yeah. Um yeah, Gabe Dixon. Uh and uh was it one of the Wooten brothers? Who was uh who else was in it with you? So at that time it was Nick Buta on drums,
1: Allison Presswood on bass, and and uh, Gabe Dixon yeah. on keys. But yeah. you know in this town, man, it's like we are so lucky in this town. It's like, okay, so <laughs> you know just for let's just say you, okay. So, Chris Blair, you're a writer, so you can write with all these great writers, or you can open up a club where people from all over the country and the world can come, and every night you can have top notch. And it, there's not better writers in the world than there are in Nashville, yeah. Well, it's the same thing with musicians. So, when I would book gigs for my blues band, those are my core group. Gabe Dixon, who I, I've known for 30 years, one of my best friends, great writer, great pop guy. And I used to tell people, man, he's one of the best keyboard players in the world. And they'd say, this guy is playing in this little club with you, well, now he's playing with Tedeschi Trucks Band. Yeah. One of the best bands in the world. So yeah, I would still say he's one of the best guys yeah. in the world. And um, all of those musicians are badasses. And and I knew it was great when one day, early on in my Belcourt Taps gigs, I called four of my drummers. None of them could do it. And one of them gave me a number, this guy named Jack Bruno. Good guy. Great guy, Jack. Great musician jack came and did the gig was amazing well jack played 22 years with joe cocker so we live in a town where the fifth call <laughs> drummer <laughs> yeah where a schmuck running a blues band is the guy who played with joe cocker among other people you know so um i kind of just started focusing on stuff i loved i sold some catalog which helped me uh again recover i mean yeah that's the thing about staying sober i mean. I have I I'm in recovery, which means I know I can't drink anymore, and I'm okay with that. I've come to acceptance with that, and uh and so I have other other joys and loves. And one of the things I'm doing now, if I can plug something.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to talk about. Yeah, is I'm doing this cooking show. Yeah, with your daughter co-
1: with my daughter Isabella. Yeah. I don't know if you'd ever seen I did during the pandemic like a little Instagram thing where it's like seven minute clips and stuff. But this is something where, you know, my little brother who's passed away, it'll be... not. It just was 19 years he died. We were so close. He was one of my best friends. He was my best friend, essentially. Um, he died of complications from type 1 diabetes. And uh he was a wonderful chef. So I learned to cook kind of from him. And then from him, I started watching... It was, we just had our daughter at the time, so it was the early days of Food Network. So I was watching Food Network all the time. And um so... I always wanted to do something where I did that, had cooking on a show, had music on a show, and then had humor. Because I don't know if you knew this about me, but I used to dabble in not only stand-up comedy, but uh, Marshall will kill me for saying this because he says I should never let this out <laughs> in public. But I used to be a clown. I used to work as a professional clown. <laughs> I did not know that about you. Yeah. I was a clown. Oh, my gosh. Named Lenny it. the Hobo. We need uh, the hobo the hobo back in uh, six flags great adventure new jersey yeah. yeah two summers i was a great clown i was a serious method clown i never <laughs> broke uh broke character
0: that's awesome man we got to dig up some uh some old pictures of that oh yeah i sure. can show you one for yeah. sure
1: it's on my phone but uh but yeah man so i just want to do something that makes me happy and yeah what makes me happy is Playing shows, like, you know, I love playing here. I love playing around town. I do festivals out of town. Uh, I love doing all that. I love playing with my blues band. And I love playing, writing with stuff I want to write now these days. Because yeah. I just, I, 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 I've just realized that, you know, the key to me being a happy, sober person in my life is doing stuff that makes me happy. Life is hard enough. Even in an ideal situation, Life's gonna keep coming at me, and just when you think you're doing great, something bad's gonna happen. So, I try to just be as happy as possible. And this show idea I have uh, called Dylan Altman's Soul Stew. That's what it's called. Um, we're just doing it. We're shooting it in my my house, in my kitchen, in my living room, and and I cook. And then, like for example, Gabe Dixon was my first guest, and I cook, and he. I try to cater the dish to the person, the artist I have, and. um Gabe's a vegetarian, and I'm from Jersey, I'm a big Italian uh, cuisine guy, so I made an eggplant rollatini, which is like eggplant parmesan, but you load it up with ricotta cheese and stuff, and roll it up, put sauce on it, bake it in the oven, it's amazing. So I cook, we splice in some humor in there, he and I have a conversation about food and music, and then right there in my living room, he sings a song on his piano, on my piano, and then he and I play a song together, and you know, that's the type of show I would want to watch. So yeah. I'm just trying to do something that hopefully works out. And again, it gets me to work on my, my daughter, who I just adore. She's my only yeah. child, and she's a great kid and very, super talented. So, yeah, man, I'm just chasing that. And I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm willing to just kind of try it now. Yeah. And, and again, I still write songs, and I'm so grateful for my success I've had in this town and and um, all the wonderful writers – We both know. I mean, it's like you know, it's so funny, man. The music business, you know, when I talk to people, uh, civilians, as we would probably call them, (laughs) who aren't in the business back home and stuff about it, it's like you know, it's 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 an awful business. There's this great quote. It's like you know, it's it's dog eat dog. It's actually worse than dog eats dog. It's dog doesn't return other dog's phone call. You know. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, but that's all right because though we've met. Both of us probably met some of the shittiest people in the business and our you know, that we've ever known. Some of the best people I've ever known are in this business, man. Yeah. The writers and and musicians are are some of my dearest friends and and super talented, kind, good people. So, um, yeah, I have nothing but gratitude at this day. You know, it's like I, I look at, especially sitting here with you today, you know, a guy I've been playing in, Three iterations of your club, yeah. Because I don't think I played in the one in Franklin ever. Yeah, I was I was a little before me, but I, I've done that. And then I, again, a day before my four-year sobriety day, where my life changed forever. Yeah. I always tell people it's like um, the best day of my life is the day Isabella was born. The second best day of my life was the day I was arrested at the airport and dragged to rehab, because it changed my life, man. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and it's all the things I used to think. When I did, was thinking about stopping drinking, but it was scared too. us, like, will I be able to write songs anymore? Will I be able to? Uh, will I be able to play guitar? Will I be able to sing? Will I be funny? All that stuff. It's all bullshit, man. All that stuff is nothing. I, I can do all that stuff better than I did, and it's just. Uh, and because I just I'm present, man. It's like yep. when I do around now instead of like looking constantly down at my drink to see, okay, well I got to get, okay, I'm almost done. I got to get the attention of the bartender so I can get someone to bring me up a drink. Now I'm listening to the, my, my co-writers and, and I'm playing guitar behind them, trying to be as tasteful as I can, you know, and just doing the thing and, and connecting because, because in my sad, dark years, I was lacking that.
0: So yeah,
1: that's where I'm at.
0: Man, I'm just, I'm so proud of you. It's been, uh, it's been a blast um, sitting down with you today. and Thanks, uh, And being a small part of your story. Yeah, yeah. Man. So when, uh, with the cooking show, like, when can people start to, to well, check we're, that we, out? Well, we
1: were hoping to target, uh, we're going to do a YouTube channel, though I'm going to do other things to try and get more viewership and, and maybe a sponsor to, or maybe even take it to another, get someone behind it. Yeah. But we're shooting for an, a YouTube launch either in, probably be mid to late October. Okay. Because I've already got four shows shot. Um, we just got to edit them together, and then we'll start posting them. But I'll be, as we get close, I I'll start flooding stuff
0: with yeah me, so people will know well and by the time this episode comes out that everybody's listening to it's probably going to be around that time too yeah, yeah. so you just text me and we'll put yeah, yeah. all the information in I the liner absolutely notes man will, and we'll man. uh and we'll push it so everybody can uh can check that out it's uh i love to eat and i love music so i can't wait to uh, yeah yeah man yeah, and i, and I love it. to cook so uh um, well,
1: there'll be some good recipes in for you in good case. deal again i'm not i always I, i'm not a chef i don't pretend to be a chef but i love to cook and i'm pretty good at it And I have real reverence for it. It's like, you know, just like I have, you know, I I have nothing but respect for the people who are my guests. Yeah. It's like I love music. I love people. I love food. I love laughter. And I'm just trying to combine it all in one thing. And who knows, man, maybe five years we'll be talking about this and I'll be doing a a, a live version of my (laughs) show on your stage here, you know, which would be incredible because it's taken off so much. And maybe not. But either way, I know this much. I'm able to try it now in a way I never would have when I was when I was drinking, because I was just ruled by fear, and now it's like i want to I go towards love
0: man i want yeah. I want to do stuff that makes me happy, and hopefully I can share it with other people man yeah, yeah, absolutely. well, before we wrap up, I always end with the same question, so everything that you've gone through in Jersey and your rock days and your blues band mm-hmm. days and getting here and uh you know great great success with multiple number ones and going through sobriety, yeah, yeah. everything. Uh, if you go back to Jersey and talk to eight year old Dylan hmm. today, what advice do you give yourself? <clears throat> um. Well, I would, I would tell him to enjoy the
1: ride. Definitely. Because the things that we think are going to happen more often than not don't happen. But, if we're open to change and stuff, we'll find that what does happen is pretty damn good or you're okay with it. And, you know, it's funny because I have a song. It's like the, the answer to that question is a song I wrote with Will Hogue, one of my best buddies and a great artist here in town, called Too Old to Die Young. And we wrote that because Will and I came up in the mid-90s in town here in our mid-20s. And, mm-hmm. and we were dreaming still. Rock and roll stardom was still attainable in our minds. And... um We kind of fell apart, grew apart just because he was on the road and stuff. And then we met again. We reconnected in like 2011, 2010 after he he had had an almost fatal accident and I'd gone through my divorce. And we wrote that song, Too Old to Die Young. And the idea behind the song is just that. It's that, you know, the guys we were in our mid-20s or when I was 8 years old, you expect something different. You want something different. But you suddenly wake up at 40 and with what you have – you wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Now, granted, at that time, I was starting to drink too much, but I would not have traded writing songs and having my daughter. Like, my daughter was my absolute pride and joy to that day, and she still is now. So, yeah, I would just say that, man, that life is going to throw us curves and just try to find happiness and do stuff that makes you happy. Yeah, love that. And don't
0: hurt people. Be kind to people. I would say that, too. Yeah. Man, love it. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure, dude. Yeah, great, man. Great seeing you. Yeah. Really appreciate you having me. Yeah, well, uh, I can't wait to uh, to do it again as a uh, kind of like a uh, a cooking show. Yeah, let's, let's, I'm make, that you, let's make that yeah, happen. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. It.
1: maybe in a year or two, we'll, uh, but even five years too far out, we'll have I'll have something. That's right. yeah. Tangible, and we'll be able to do like a uh, a show with the listener where there's music and cooking.
0: That's I love it, talking. and Italian food's my favorite. So, oh, there yeah. you go, man. Yeah. So we'll do it. So. All right. Well, thank you guys, everybody out there listening. Uh, And again, go check out the liner notes and we'll put links to, uh, to find this cooking show and everything else. And uh, this has been another episode of stories behind the songs with Dylan Altman. We'll see you next time. This has been an episode of stories behind the songs with Chris Blair. For more information after the show, head over to chrisblair.com. That's where you can find information on these episodes, trailer notes, video links, all kinds of great stuff. Also, make sure to leave us a great rating on iTunes, like and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a comment, let us know what you think. I really hope that you think this show is awesome and we really appreciate the love and support. I promise to keep gathering great content and continuing to sit down with more amazing songwriters and artists as we grow. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the support. We'll see you next time.